<laughs> oh, yeah, Brendan, uh, apologies in advance. I have a really loud laugh, so have fun with that. It's That's okay. what compressors are for, baby. Yeah. We got it. I actually laugh like Jadakiss. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. Mm. No, it's not bad. Oh, let's keep, keep all this in, please. Yeah, this no, is this all is, gold. Um, yeah, an hour of this. Uh, uh, welcome to uh, the Chapa's uh, Trapas. Uh, in honor of our subject and uh, guest today, we are all... Uh, we are all France. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we have our new segment uh, uh, where we try to do a radio play uh, about the most comedic subject in France called If Muhammad Was Homeless and Black and Gay. <laughs> I have won uh, 17 Légion d'Honneur awards for my radio plays about how... Uh, uh, it's a new new comedy. It's called uh, a Black Guy and Whoever. <laughs> <laughs> Greetings, everybody. From that little uh, that little intro uh, is you know I think a good segue into uh, this week's topic. Uh, this week's show I think is sort of a sequel to the episode we did a while back with Derek Davison on the film The Conqueror, starring John Wayne, about Temujin, a.k.a. Genghis Khan. Dance for me, Tartar woman. <laughs> I thought it was one of our favorites, but, you know, I, I wanted, uh, we want to go back into history. You know, we want to we educate people, and in doing so, repeat our model for success, which is stealing from, you know, other more popular podcasts. And one of the things they do is talk about history and some of the great leaders and warriors throughout the past. And we did that with Genghis Khan, and this week, we are going to do it with Napoleon. That's right. You people know hardcore history? We're bang bus history. <laughs> the, the, the history bang bus yeah. is pulling up right now. And we're going to take you all on a ride. And we're going to teach you how, through like the great men of the past, can inspire you in your um, ebook, uh, your, your, your self-writing uh, ebook business. Mm-hmm. Um, just, you know, working at a copy shop or, you know, uh, just, you know gaming defending yourself from a imprisonment charge like anything that happens to, to it's just we can learn from the past yeah. and use these lessons in our life yeah. but without too much further ado i want to introduce our guest for this week our napoleon expert i'm talking about our good friend everett who you probably know better from twitter as at trillburn everett how's it going Hey guys, long time, first time. <laughs> Everett is one of the smartest people that follows us. For and this is actually a similar tone to the Derek episodes because it's like an incredibly smart guy who likes the show for some reason. Mm-hmm. A guy who is re- like literally reads like four books a day about you know the evolution of the phalanx formation. And they're like, oh, this is really this show where they talk about uh, sucking Steve Bannon's dick. It's just great. I love it. We have a we have a we have a broad appeal, but um, similar to the like I said to the Conquer episode, and you know, true to form, we need uh, we need motion pictures. We need cinema as our sort of gateway into the past. And the film we're doing this week, I was excited to do because it's actually the first movie uh, we've talked about on the show that I actually like. Um, but I was, of course, instantly gutted to find out that uh, Felix hated the movie. I didn't hate it. I didn't hate it. Me... <laughs> before, wait, before I go any further, the movie that we're going to be talking about, and hopefully, you know, as our entry point into the Napoleonic era, is uh, The Duelists, directed by Ridley Scott. It stars Harvey Keitel and Keith Carradine, 
uh, and it's based on a short story by uh, Joseph Conrad, and it was uh, made in 1977. Um, it's about these two officers in Napoleon's army who engage with each other over the course of over a decade, this uh, insane feud punctuated by one, you know, duels every time they see each other with rapier, saber, and gun. Um, and in that, they're sort of, uh, you know, in the backdrop of all of this is Napoleon and the great wars of Europe. So I feel like we've already lost Felix. So to bring him back, I want to recenter him in this conversation by asking Everett, overall, how does one see the characteristics and vision of Napoleon in our own Felix Biederman? Well, this is a theory that I've been developing for quite some time now. Um, so first off, uh, Napoleon did not suffer fools well. If you know, He was harsh on people he felt were incompetent or let him down. Um, Fake friends. Poor character. Which um, is everyone to me. <laughs> yeah, um, I see that in Felix. He... Um, he loved to fight. He was really competitive. Um, he, uh, as we all know, there was a lot of controversy about how tall he actually was, which is Huge a phenomenon problem. you see with Felix. Um, and he was obsessed with Islam. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's something that might ring a bell for Felix. And there's another thing, too. Uh, people might not know this, but really, Napo- Napo- people think of Napoleon, you know, Emperor of France and, and the French and all that. But he was actually Italian. Corsica only became a French territory a year before he was born, and his first language was Italian, right, Everett? Yeah, uh, he actually I'm had to get tutored in French before he yeah. went to uh, boarding school. So he was really an Italian. So he, like Felix, did most of his most significant uh, uh, things in life wearing a tracksuit. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. And if you think about like he it, he was at the Italy. Battle of Austerlitz wearing an Adidas tracksuit, I believe, Absolutely. And, and, and eating a big bowl of uh, of red sauce. <laughs> he uh, he wore an army uniform when he was technically not in the army when he was really an official. <laughs> Just that like is, our that boy. is stealing value. <laughs> Josephine, I told you to get the orange juice without the pulp. <laughs> now he sounds like me. Look, I want to clarify. I did not hate the movie The Duelist. I had the problems I have with every movie made in the seventies. Steven is- Seagal wasn't in it. Steven Seagal. <laughs> Can I just quote the text you sent when we were uh, uh, discussing during the episode days? This movie, this movie sucks dick. <laughs> well, yeah, that's what you said about the movie. Well, the, my emotions were running hot. Okay. Uh, because well, I think basically it was like he was watching these duels, and he's like, "I could take either of these guys." Yeah, I could take the <laughs> shit out of both of those guys. Both those guys fucking suck. I would destroy both of them. There's the part where they were grappling, and okay, so he yeah, he gets the one guy down with an over under throw into side control, but he instantly gives it up. Like you don't you don't deserve to be in the army. Like that's <laughs> they're like, officers. They fucking suck. But it actually, like, I did, I actually liked it after the first hour. Like, I did, I liked it, and there are some, you, look, a lot of times when you watch movies from the 70s, the tits are weird because it was before we put a lot of hormones in the food. But there are some fucking bomb titties in this movie. Like, they were... Thank you, stop. They were just fucking... 
dude, when you watch them on a 4K TV. Yeah, that was ooh. like the that was the height of women's fashion that era when like you couldn't show your ankles, but you could have like two thirds of your tits out at any moment. Yeah. Oh, it was pretty common that you could literally see like it would just be lace over a woman's breasts. I mean, it's weird to think that they were. You know, they're all in these, you know, fancy chambers listening to classical music, and they've all got their tits out. Yeah, no, I mean, that's every movie from the that's 70s. That's how I run my salons. Every movie from the 70s is called, like, you know, the man, the, you know, the expert, the shopkeep. And only 48% of the dialogue is audible for some fucking reason. Like, you can't hear any dialogue from any movie at that time. But there are titties in full bush in every scene. <laughs> In every scene, in like Kramer versus Kramer, like the judges' tits are on the table. <laughs> That's why it was a good era. Too, too far down the into seventies film. I want to go back to. I want to talk. I want to. I'm hoping to talk to Everett about um, just like you know. Uh, some of like what mili- like what the culture of uh, Napoleon's army was like, just like the 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 wars of the era, but and then like going to the film itself. But before we do, I want to ask like a very sort of general question, and that is. Like, how did you get into this area of history or like, or this, this period and this character in, in history? Like, I know uh, Matt has talked before in the past about his uh, love of the Civil War when he was a kid. Like, wh- how did you come to this and why? Well, first thing, um, I, I lived in France when I was really little. And when you're in France, I mean, Napoleon is just everywhere. I mean, you know. How did this come about? Who built this? Who founded this? It's always Napoleon is the answer. And, uh, you know, I went to Les Invalides when I was a little kid, which is his tomb. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a shrine, basically, temple to this guy. And that makes an impression on you when you're four. Um, And then, you know, he's one of those people, he just keeps popping up when you're into history. You know, everyone's got their own opinion on him. Um, you know, he's the most, after Jesus, he's the figure with the most, uh, uh, books written about him in the Western world. And, you know, it's just, there's endless takes on him. Um, you know, he's kind of a a political hot button in every country in Europe for different reasons in different ways. And so it's kind of like, you know, it makes you wonder like, well, what actually was it about this guy that, you know, made him have such an influence? And the more you dig, it's interesting. You actually don't get a good answer because he's kind of a ambiguous figure. And so you just dig more and more and you find more and more perspectives on him. And, uh, it's just, he continues to fascinate. And that's why I think people are still talking about him 200 years later. Ev, I had a, that's like sort of my track into my spectrum obsession with Islam came through Napoleon because my mom was a, is a Francophile and got me into Napoleon. And, Someone said that Jews and French people are the only people like really holding that torch for Napoleon anymore. Yeah, Jews and French people, um, Poles like him too. Um, for a he long time, the screen this is kind door. of gone now. But for a long time, that was a like north-south divide in Germany. People from northern Germany hated him. People from southern Germany liked him. Um, same with Italians. It was like a liberal conservative thing in Italy. All the liberals liked him. All the conservatives hated him. And it's just crazy. I mean, he's one man. You know, he didn't found a religion or anything. But um, and at, Ev, at the at the height of his 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 power, like how much of Europe was under his rule? Uh, all of it, pretty much. I mean, other than honestly, England? you know, uh, you know, height of you know, if you look at you know the the period of time where the the map is the most colored blue, you know, French blue, 
it really is uh, most of Europe um, either French allied to the French um, under French direct control or um, there's a French army somewhere trying to take it over. <laughs> and again, like a, a very like in the very general sense, you know, for people who don't know, when when people talk about the Napoleonic era, ex- like when exactly are they talking about? So, um, I mean, it's, you know, it's one of those terms. It does have some flexibility to it. But basically, we're talking Napoleon comes to power at the end of 1799. And then he's uh, finally defeated at Waterloo in 1815. So it's really about a period of 15 years, um, you know, with the interruption of the exile on Elba. So that's actually not that much time we're talking about that he was in power. Um, that's like half the length of time that The Simpsons has been on. <laughs> <laughs> o- Obama was in office more than half as long as Napoleon was in office. And Obama was he didn't get also- as much done. Also, like Napoleon, obsessed with Islam because he yep. is, is Muslim. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I want to get into the, the the movie a little bit. Um, the movie, like I, you know, I think pretty much covers this this same time period. The movie opens in eighteen hundred, and it opens with a uh, Harvey Keitel's character um, dueling uh, who's the nephew of uh, the, the city of Strasbourg's uh, mayor. And he wounds him terribly uh, in this duel over something, again, these obscure points of honor that obsess this character. Um, but why would the officers in Napoleon's army, why did they, how did they find themselves in Strasbourg in 1800? Like, like, let's begin there. Like, what was going on at that time? The height of the revolution, the uh, French revolutionary government uh, declared war on Austria. And basically every country in Europe joined in. Um, you know, France had been in decline for a long time at that point, and a lot of countries kind of thought it was finally the time to knock them off their uh, off their pedestal once and for all. Um, and you know, it looked like there were all these rebellions inside France, and it kind of looked like the revolution was doomed. But then uh, something strange happened, which is they the French government asked their people of France to fight for them, which it sounds strange now, but governments didn't really do that, and people didn't want to go back to feudalism. And so they joined up. And so the French revolutionary government formed these huge armies. I mean, by the standards of the time, just, you know, how do the French keep, you know, putting more men into the field? And uh, it was a long war. um, But uh, 1800, um, they've, uh, they've won, they've beaten all these powers um, that were assembled against them. And uh, there's peace. Wasn't there, I mean, there's a degree to which, yeah, 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 I'm calling first time, long time, yeah. Wasn't there a degree to which uh, Napoleon is sort of a systems quarterback? (laughs) I mean, if you think about it, like, he's fighting these armies that are made up of mercenaries and conscripts who are going to desert at the first chance, don't give a shit. He's basically fielding the first ever citizen-soldier army of people who have, like, a coherent nationalist ethos and are really, you know, fighting of their own volition. They don't need to be basically guarded. They're not going to desert. That makes them faster. That makes them more agile. I mean, isn't he basically just, you know, he's racking up easy wins because he's fighting them with a more, with a p- army that nobody ever seen before. I'll take my answer off the air. <laughs> uh, after the break, we're going to talk about the best type of grilling you can do for Brumaire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
yeah, that's uh, Matt. Matt is correct as always. Um, yeah, the French uh, invented respecting the troops, um, and they. Uh, you know, that was the first army. Literally, uh, in the Italian campaign, the Austrian army, the soldiers had to ask permission to go to the bathroom, and then be escorted by a sergeant because otherwise they would just run off. <laughs> I mean, these guys just did not give a shit. Um, whereas in the French army. These guys are all terrified that the king is going to come back and make, you know, let, let the nobles abuse them again. And uh, Napoleon gave them loot when they won. And so these guys have in the back of their minds, you know, at the end of tonight, I can be, you know, have some money in my pocket and a full belly and a bottle of wine. Or I can go back to not having shoes and having the king. And that's a good motivator. So did they and have did they have yellow troop ribbons on the back of their horse carts? Kind of. They, I mean, th- those like you've probably seen those those cockades um, that the guys put in their hats and the armbands. I mean, this they that's when all this stuff was invented by the French. You know, supporting the troops. Uh, you know, wounded warriors, that kind of thing. Um, but well, one of the. Course. One of the, you know, like probably the motivated, the driving device of the film and, and the story it's based on is this concept of dueling and honor that compels these two characters to pursue each other or be pursued uh, over the course of a decade, you know, in these increasingly violent uh, clashes between one another over this, you know, bizarre and inscrutable point of honor. So could you talk a little bit about like what was like the military culture of his army and Napoleon's army like? Well, Among the, I mean, the most important part is what we just talked about, that these guys had were invested in winning. Um, but these guys uh, in the movie, uh, you know, the, these armies were divided in, by kind of the roles of the soldiers. And the guys in the movie are hussars, which are light cavalry. They fight on horseback, um, mostly with sabers, also with pistols. Uh, they wear those crazy uniforms in the movie. Um, Do they really have like, that, those terrible braids? Yeah, the braids were part of it. Oh, I mean, those supposedly, so supposedly like that Keith, could Keith. Uh, you actually, stop you a saber see, cut to the neck. You actually neck, see uh, the their uniforms and hairstyles change as as the movie progresses as well. My yeah, favorite, they, eventually the army banned those braids because they became so popular and they're they're gross. <laughs> my favorite uh, line in the movie is when uh, the the young Bonapartists, who were a conservative rap group in 19th century France, <laughs> said. Uh, uh, I cannot be the only one who thinks that if uh, all uh, the army got together, they could beat any uh, cricket team or draw Muhammad better than anyone. <laughs> <laughs> but like specifically, you know, the, the idea of the duel, right? And and you know, this is a, a take on another one of my favorite movies. You know, Barry Lyndon is another great yeah. movie about duels, and it takes place. It's basically the same era. Uh, maybe a little bit earlier in Barry Lyndon, but like, what is it? What about this? Like, what is this concept of like the, these highly formalized sort of uh, death sports come from? So, being a hussar, that's was one of the most dangerous jobs in the French army. Um, hussars basically they do scouting, um, so they're out alone, you know, away from the army where they're vulnerable, and they do uh, massed charges, which. Um, if they do well, then they're, you know, they tend to not have many casualties. But if they go poorly, everybody tends to die. Um, there's a famous uh, uh, general who was a, a hussar general, and he said a, a good hussar uh, is dead by 25. And so it was really kind of a, almost, a, you know, embracing that. Um, 
And the, the, the dueling comes from older military culture. It's aristocratic. But then in Napoleon's army, you suddenly have all these rich middle class guys in the officer corps. And they're kind of trying to ape these aristocratic manners um, by dueling. And, you know, the, that is the thing about Harvey Keitel's character is that he's he's a lunch pail hussar. You know, he doesn't come from money. Yeah. He hasn't had an easy life, you know, but he's he's hungry. He's ambitious. He's on the come up. But he's also fanatically devoted to Napoleon. And indeed, like one of the things that kicks off uh, the altercation between him and Keith Carradine's character in the very beginning of the movie is uh, Harvey Keitel is very angry at being uh, put under house arrest by Keith Carradine's character, who's been ordered to do it. And he says, would you let them spit on Napoleon? And the Keith Carradine character, De Hubert, um, says something sarcastic or sort of plays it off like, oh, yeah, whatever, buddy. And that enrages him. And that he challenges him on the spot, basically. So, like, did they, like, Napoleon as a figure, like, as a leader, like, was inspiring that kind of, like, loyalty among his men, like, uh, one of his biggest assets, would you say? Yeah, you know, one of the things I like about that Faroe character is I feel like he really captures this, the, the Keitel character. Um, you know, that's a certain type of man who really benefited from Napoleon. You know, it's a guy, you know, he's clearly kind of lower class, clearly a military guy. And these are the guys who were really the, the core of Napoleon's army, guys who were, you know, before the revolution were like maybe sergeants or had done some time in the military. But because they were commoners, they had no chance of advancing. So they kind of drifted away from it. Um, and then, you know, for someone like that to suddenly be recognized and to suddenly have a chance to advance yourself by being brave, merit. being yeah. selfless and merit. Yeah, that um, was really powerful for a lot of people. And uh, particularly, Napoleon loved kind of, um, you know, rewarding people, singling people out who he thought had done some good service. And that really instilled loyalty in people. So he basically invented being a lib. Yeah. He invented the idea of meritocracy as the ultimate virtue. I mean, it sounds Uh, crazy, but the French army was the only army in Europe that had merit-based promotion. So the other if, armies... he had been, if he was around today and he was a figure of note and had a lot of money, Napoleon would be offering like scholarships for people who learn to code or something like that. Oh, he, yeah, totally. The Charlie Hebdo yeah. uh, draw fellatio scholarship. <laughs> he, Napoleon did love he, – he sort of – I mean there was obviously – combat medals and unit commendations before napoleon but he really popularized the concept of giving them to more enlisted men like he wasn't that one of his things yeah he um you know he also uh regimental pride was huge in the napoleonic armies um one of the highest honors you could get was there were these eagles and uh, it was a gold eagle, which was the symbol of, of his regime. And, uh, and, and the, the regiment distinguished themselves. They would, he would uh, give you one of these gold eagles to put on top of your flag. Like, you know, people like flags tend to have kind of like a little spear point on them. He would give you one of these eagles and he would kind of bless it. And uh, that was the highest honor you could get. And of course, that means the biggest dishonor is capturing one of those eagles. Gang, gang. <laughs> but um, <laughs> you, you mentioned, okay, so like, the, you mentioned that the Napoleon, and of the era, the Napoleonic army was the only army where you could be, like, where you could have merit-based promotion, right? Right. And it had been basically thrown together out of this, like, mass sort of nationalist surge of people who did not want to go back to feudalism. 
Now, a lot of the popular conception of Napoleon is that he is this, you know, a tyrant. He was like a scourge of Europe. He killed God knows how many people in these, you know, wars. But at the same time, he was essentially destroying a lot of old aristocratic forms of power that were also perhaps not so good and also almost in a a modern, almost uh, democratic way. Yeah, um, and that's what makes his legacy complicated, you know, because he was a tyrant um, in a lot of ways, but he was tyrannical about imposing a more open, democratic, egalitarian system. Like, I just think often in... In popular paradox. culture and, and movies, at least, the fact that, like, because we're um, an English-speaking country, we are, you know, the inheritors of kind of like an Anglo culture and world. Often, the British are held up as, you know, heroes, like the great battles of, you know, Trafalgar and Waterloo or whatever for fighting Napoleon's tyranny. But they they were fighting to defend their rotten monarchy and yeah. aristocracy. So. I mean, like, I know who I'd be rooting for yeah. in, in that situation. The moment, the moment Wellington won, he was like, we're going to celebrate by sending 100 boys to private school to be raped. <laughs> <laughs> well, people forget the British were not the main opponent. They were kind of his most important enemy, but they mostly just, you know, blockaded the French ports and then paid other people in Europe to fight for them. That's so Napoleon's main shit. enemies were like the Habsburgs and the Prussians and the Russians who like, you know a lot of their population were like effectively almost slaves. Um, so, um, and the Russians in particular were terrified that um, when Napoleon invaded, that all of the, uh, all of the serfs were going to rush to join the French. So, you know, that's almost more of like a, you know, uh, like Soviet invasion of Europe vibe to it. Right. He was Khaleesi. <laughs> <laughs> Slay emperor. Slay emperor. <laughs> now, I mentioned the movie. The movie opens in 1800 in Austria. Yeah, okay. So Napoleon had just conquered Italy at this time. That, that's what he was doing. But, like, you know, but he was commanding essentially the entire French, you know, empire. Right. And he had just, just come to power. Let's sort of go back to the beginning and sort of could you narrate for us sort of his rise to power? Because you, you mentioned in the beginning he's from Corsica, uh, which Matt said only became a part of France a year uh, after his birth. So, already sort of, sort of an outsider. Uh, I mean, that's, you know, being an outsider kind of defines his early life. Um, He went to boarding school in France when he was very young. He was nine and he was sent away from home to a foreign country. And uh, he did not speak French very well. Um, He uh, was a loner. The other children did not like him. His family was poor. They were aristocrats, but they were poor aristocrats um, and from a foreign country. So he was, you know, kind of the the weird new kid and spent all his time reading and was very introverted um he wrote a lot about how he felt like uh you know in roman times they would send hostages to go live in the conquering powers capital and that's he said he wrote that that's how he felt um did he ever write they laugh at me because i'm different but i laugh at them because they're all the same <laughs> he did i mean he would have been a hot topic kid at that point in his life he was totally just a depressed kind of gothy um and he didn't get very good grades but he impressed his teachers so he got recommended to this very prestigious military school in paris and that's when he really began to shine um but then he kind of there's a weird lull in his career he graduates really early he graduates from the school in under two years Uh, Most people took up to six, um, 
But then, you know, he's a poor guy in this peacetime army, no real connections. So he's just kind of hanging out in his regiment, reading a lot of books, trying to write. He's not, very, not a very good writer at that stage, though. Um, then the revolution breaks out. And, you know, for a young man who's into this kind of enlightenment stuff, into this, um, you know, classical writings from Republican Rome, he gets really swept up in it. Um but then also he's disturbed by it because he sees people getting butchered and he sees, you know, mob violence when he's in Paris. Um, so he's, you know, at the same time wrapped up in these ideals, but also um, develops this fear of kind of mob violence and disorder. Um, then he goes back to Corsica to try to kind of launch himself in politics totally fails um this guy he's trying to buddy up to never warms to him and ends up turning on him and his family they have to flee so he's basically a refugee in france in um in 1793 and he begs one of his political patrons for a job gets an assignment to the army sieging the city of toulon in southern france which was uh, uh in rebellion against the government and he you know instantly takes charge and begins to show his talents. And one of his, I mean, Napoleon had a lot of martial talents. He was a huge innovator in using mobile artillery to back up infantry. But what were some of his other talents like in the siege? Well, you know, the interesting thing about him is, you know, he was good at kind of synthesizing other people's ideas and employing ideas that had been sort of theorized but never put into practice. Um, I would say his main talent was just kind of being able to make good snap decisions and making decisive decisions um, and just having good judgment kind of generally because, you know, there's no – when you study his campaigns, there's no kind of one thing you can point to where it's like, ah, this was like Napoleon's secret move that made him good. You know, it's just that he repeatedly makes the right decision and repeatedly kind of is well prepared for whatever comes up. Listeners, take note. You can apply this to your Patreon or uh, ebook business. Uh, always just make <laughs> decisions, but make them decisively, even if they're the wrong one. And also go to Corsica and fail there so you can succeed big exactly. later in France. You know, you were saying that Napoleon reminds uh, everyone of me, but you know who he actually reminds me of? Who? Solid Snake. <laughs> no, even, even more heroic. Eminem. <laughs> okay, so like when he fucks up, like when he's the, out of a job in Corsica, that's like in Eight Mile when B Rabbit like chokes at the rap battle. Mm-hmm. But then you remember the, the the time the scene in the movie where he's at work and the guy's being homophobic and Eminem raps against him and calls him a faggot. That's the siege. <laughs> <laughs> and Josephine, Josephine, she's Kim. You're right. They got to, he, he left the forest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, yeah. 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 he did have a bitch ex-wife. Yeah, yeah. that's true. Um, <laughs> actually, that, this, this is actually a this, this is a good segue. Actually, let's talk about Josephine. Behind every great man, there's a great Josephine. And in this case, wait, no, wait. Her name is Josephine. Sorry, we'll we'll edit this out in post. But um, so yeah, this is a uh, this is a uh, his his one of the great marriages and uh, failed marriages in history. Who is Josephine? How did they make? What was their relationship like? It's a weird story. I mean, this is truly one of the weirdest things about Napoleon. Um, she was way older than him. They they lied um, about their ages, so it would seem less weird. She was the mistress of his political patron, 
but he dumped her and basically kind of fobbed her off on Napoleon because he was tired of, you know, when he dumped her, he was like, oh, I'll always take care of you. And he was tired of paying for all of her expenses. And so he found out Napoleon liked her and he was like, hey, this guy, you know, to take her off his hands, basically. Um, Don't save her. And- Don't save her, Napoleon. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, his first rank in the army was Captain Sabaho. <laughs> <laughs> And he, he, so they got married, and three days later, he left to Italy, which is how he made his reputation in Italy. Uh, so they were married for three days before he left. She never responded to any letters he wrote from Italy and immediately began cucking him. <laughs> nice guy syndrome. <laughs> and uh, he, while he was on campaign, found out and you know, hot-blooded French guy. He wanted to go back and kill this guy. And his generals had to, like, kind of uh, almost like put him under house arrest to stop him from going back. Um, but that, you know, really messed him up. Then, of course, within a few months, he's one of the most famous men in Europe because of the Italian campaign. All of a sudden, let Josephine me guess. shows Let up me guess who shows up. Again. <laughs> <laughs> this is another important lesson behind every sort of powerful man burning with ambition and uh, a sort of rage and vision for the world uh, is a cucking, is a brutal, brutal cucking in their past. That's right. Cernovich, <laughs> the Napoleon of our time. <laughs> so, so after the Italian campaign, he's one of the most famous people in Europe. And it, I'm like, he conquers pretty much all of Italy and then begins to push into Austria. They so they sue for peace. Napoleon negotiates, and then like basically, you know, he's got Europe on lock. Yeah, and I mean, so and this, this is by like this is by seventeen ninety seven, seventeen ninety eight. Right, and I mean the, the the weirdness of him being the one who negotiated the peace like should be emphasized because he's a general at this stage. I mean. The government just let him that shows, you know, how how powerful he was and how he was already kind of starting to see some political authority where he's just um, you know, he didn't get permission to do that. He just the Austrians sent an ambassador to ask for a, a ceasefire. And he basically was like, hey, let's start working on this peace treaty. And uh, no one was able to stop him. So he negotiated the peace. So he was, uh, you know, he saw some power to be had and uh, took it for himself. That's lesson number three. Always negotiate (laughs) the terms of surrender with Austria if you get a chance to do it. Right. And uh, after that's Egypt, which um, really interesting, um, also a weird story, but uh, winds up being a a, a failure and kind of an embarrassing failure because it ends with Napoleon uh, basically just telling his troops he was uh, ducking out for cigarettes and then never coming back. <laughs> That's so awesome. The, the dad move. That's so awesome. Um, wait, let me ask you about this. This is a, I need his, historical clarification on this point. During the Egyptian campaign, did Napoleon, in fact, order his men to uh, shoot off the nose of the Sphinx because it uh, put the lie to the fact that uh, white Yakubian devils are the true rulers of the world and not the uh, original African man? <laughs> uh, actually, I think the, the truly woke conspiracy theory is that uh, Napoleon converted to Islam in Egypt. Ooh. Okay. Well, actually, actually, you guys, you, you fucking, you, you guys are just little babies. This is Nation of Islam entry-level shit. <laughs> I'm actually a member of the Moorish Science Temple, <laughs> and what happened is... 
Napoleon went, the way he retreated is he stumbled into one of the pyramids and then he put his hand on an ankh and it it took off because it was a spaceship. <laughs> the Egyptians invented space travel and then when he was flying back to France, he was like, oh no, I have to uh, hide this. And uh, 200 years later, we'll say the white man invented uh, space. <laughs> My Have name you- is Felix uh, 78X. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, have you, we, you did mention in the beginning in comparing Napoleon to Felix that he was obsessed with Islam. Did he discover that in Egypt? Was, or how did he, what was his connection to Islam and interest in it or possible conversion to it? So that started, Napoleon was not a sentimental person. Uh, he openly yep. said in a letter... Uh, <laughs> You know, I, just I, pretend, I pretend to be Catholic because I live in a Catholic country. If I lived in a Muslim country, I'd pretend to be Muslim. If I lived in a Jewish country, I would tell everyone I was going to rebuild the temple. <laughs> um, and uh, so he started as a kind of a deliberate strategy to present himself as kind of at least quasi-Muslim. He actually, in Egypt, signed all of his edicts to like the people of Egypt. Napoleon Ali Bonaparte. Um. But he actually grew to be interested in it and grew to respect Islam. And he wrote often that he thought it was a better, a kind of a, a better, you know, he viewed religion as a tool for, um, you know, building a harmonious society. And he he viewed Islam as a, a better tool in Christianity. But, you know, you work with what you're given. So, like, it was a, it was a more ordered system for a guy, like you said, that was uh, sort of frightened of uh, the, the mob and chaos and wanted things to sort of everything to fit and r- go according to plan. Right. And he also didn't have any, you know, meddling Pope to, uh, you know, to contradict. Okay. Th- this is people. great. Can we get into now uh, his, his beefs with uh, the Pope and the Catholic church? Well, it's another thing. I got <laughs> yeah. into, I got into like a week long flame war with the trad cats. We all did. We all fought alongside you, Phil. But I was, but... The, was leading it. <laughs> I was saying the worst stuff, which is like being a general. No, no. Matthew Walther hates me the most. He hates, this. he hates you the most, but I was saying the worst stuff. <laughs> yeah, so but the, what does uh, that tell you? I don't even have to say the most most uh, anti-papist material to be hated the most. I just emanate it from my pores. Yeah, that's true. I mean, like, you, you, Coulter, Coulter Kampf Gritzman. <laughs> Is that the anti-Catholic thing? Did I fuck that up? The Nazi anti-Catholic. No, that's good. You were, no that, that was works. good. It was solid. That's Bismarck. Hell yeah, dude. <laughs> Fucking so rolling. So when Napoleon came to power, you know, he was a wily guy, and literally everyone in France, all over the political spectrum, were happy because they thought that he was one of them. The Jacobins were like, ah, oh, great, this guy was a Jacobin. He's just like us. And the, you know, conservative royalist Catholics were like, hey, this guy's Catholic. He's going to bring the king back um, because he was good at selling himself to people. Um and so at first, the Catholics thought he might be good for them, and he actually kind of, you know, because the revolutionary government had been very anti-Catholic, and he kind of made some signals that he was willing to roll some of that back if, if the Pope was willing to play ball with him, and they, uh, they did finally come to an agreement, um, but it turns out, I mean, Napoleon basically rolled the Pope because he was tired of dealing with Catholic rebels in France, and he wanted to tell them that, you know, the, the split with the Pope was over. So they have the, him and the Pope reach this agreement, um, which is pretty unfavorable to the church. 
And then on top of that, when Napoleon publishes it, he publishes it along with a list of, oh, by the way, I've amended the agreement unilaterally with the following conditions. Basically just daring the Pope to say, hey, we didn't agree to that, and the Pope couldn't, so Napoleon won that. Um, And then, you know, subsequently he had some trouble with Popes in Italy, ended up arresting a Pope at one point. Uh, (laughs) He did not have a ton of respect for Catholicism, but, you know, he kind of... His view was, hey, if people want to be Catholic, I guess that's what we're going to go with because um, he thought religion was important This kind is of as a tool to building an ordered society. This is success win lesson from history number four. Pretend to be like everyone around you, flatter them, but actually lull them into a sense of uh, complacency and always roll and then arrest the Pope. Yeah. Lesson number four. <laughs> you should arrest getting, the Pope. I'm getting a strong whiff of Straussianism from this, like a, like a pre-Straussian <laughs> idea of Ooh. religion as a useful uh, tool for social control and the necessity of constant struggle and warfare to sort of give a nation purpose and meaning. The noble lie. I mean, the, 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 you're right on the first part, but Napoleon actually, at this stage in his career, was desperate to get out of wars and solve conflicts um, because he basically, France was worn out from being, I mean, you know, constant coups within its own government, rebellions, wars. And at this stage in his career, Napoleon was selling himself as, hey, I'm the guy who ends wars and brings you peace. And, uh, you know, I'm the only person strong enough that um, if I'm in charge, there will be peace. But then he invaded Russia. <laughs> Massive well, bungle. We're talking that this is like six, seven years later. And at this at that stage, he basically all his plans had been foiled. So he's basically just flying by the seat of his pants trying to keep things together and that was just kind of a you know last throw of the dice yeah that's kind of like like if your marriage is falling apart you have to start another baby in your wife <laughs> like you have to have a new <laughs> campaign i want to get i want to get to the uh, the retreat from moscow which is in the film but before before we get there i just want like, to touch on a few things that aren't portrayed in the film that are i think interesting and important in the life of napoleon because you talk a little bit about the uh the haiti expedition yeah so you know, it was his most unwoke moment, definitely. Yeah. Even after crashing the uh, pyramid spaceship, <laughs> uh, Napoleon's Haiti campaign was actually the model that Bernie Sanders' primary campaign <laughs> ran on. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 what was what was? Talk to us about the Haiti campaign and wh- why it's uh, you know a, a, a bit of a smudge and an otherwise untarnished legacy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's I mean, it's certainly one of the biggest smudges, far from the only one. Um, Basically, Haiti, um, through a rebellion, had overthrown slavery, and um, the the status quo when Napoleon took power is that France was sort of legally in charge of Haiti, but basically uh, Toussaint Louverture, um, a uh, black general who had been one of the leaders of the slave uprising, um, was effectively the dictator, sort of, um, you know, running Haiti autonomously, well, Saint-Domingue at that point, but running Haiti autonomously kind of in the name of France. And he wrote a letter to Napoleon basically saying, you know, this arrangement could work for both of us if you're willing to work with me. And Napoleon was not. And instead, he chose to side with um, the former slave-owning planters who were forming kind of a proto-political lobby in France who were begging him to send troops to go re-enslave these people. 
and put them back in power and uh, restore their properties. And, you know, like I said, Napoleon at this stage in his career was sort of trying to settle conflicts that had been plaguing France when he took power. And I think that's sort of how he viewed this. It's just like, oh, another conflict that I've got to resolve once and for all. And, you know, Toussaint Louverture did not have a big, powerful lobby in Paris. And the planters did. Napoleon's wife was a planter. Um, Not from Haiti, but from another French Caribbean possession. Um, And I, you know, he made the wrong decision. And he sent uh, a lot of French men to their deaths in a probably one of the worst causes you can possibly imagine. So that's, uh, yeah, if you want to talk about the bad things Napoleon did, that's going to be near the top of the list. Like, okay, so eventually he becomes emperor. What does that entail, and what was the Napoleonic Code? What was the content of the actual political ideology and system of law and government that he promulgated across Europe? So the Napoleonic Code is a law code. Um, It's actually... It was promulgated around the same time as he became emperor, but it was actually unrelated. It was a a long-term project that he'd been working on, um, and he was actually really personally involved with it. Um, He sat in on most of the meetings where they were drafting it, and um, you can actually go see in the archives his his notes on the the minutes of the meetings. Um, And what it is is it's a a law code. I mean, it's a beginning-to-end complete penal code because the old penal codes had been these kind of thrown together feudal mismatches of kind of different systems from different, um, you know, different places had different law systems. Uh, There were different law systems for commoners and aristocrats. And um, the idea behind the code Napoleon was um, to give everyone, you know, a law that would apply to everyone equally um, no more of these separate law codes for different regions, different uh, classes of people. Um, so it's kind of a you know egalitarian effort um, and uh, uh, anti-feudal. Um, you know, this was kind of the last vestige of feudalism was in these laws. Sorry, Everett, uh, we, we we cut out there for a, a little bit when you were, when you started talking about the Napoleonic Code. Matt, are you still with us? I heard all of it, and it was really good. Okay, all right. Okay, cool. <laughs> so it was just oh, the Napoleonic That's right, Code. Again. Okay, good. Now, thank you for talking about the, the Napoleonic Code. <laughs> <laughs> so he becomes emperor, and then I, I love this. Uh, Ev did, it did was kind enough to give me sort of a cheat sheet, so I don't have to. I can pretend to be as knowledgeable as he is in leading this discussion. But then we have a series of wars, a seeming, seriously, seemingly never-ending series of wars called the, the War of the Third, Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Coalition. What, who the fuck, what were these coalitions, and what was all the fighting about? <laughs> <laughs> so basically, um, there was a brief period where Napoleon was able to negotiate a peace with Britain, but basically through this whole period, Britain and France are, technically speaking, at war. And the British don't have much of an army, and it's you know very difficult to do a, a landing of, of troops in this era. So the British basically, um, with their massive financial resources, basically just kind of put out a hit on the French. You know, say if you want to raise an army to fight Napoleon, we'll bankroll it. And so basically, what happens is various powers take the British up on this offer. Napoleon defeats them. And they kind of spend a little while recovering from these losses. 
And then someone else takes the British up on their offer, and they try to fight Napoleon, and he defeats them. And it's just this never-ending cycle where Napoleon can't really get at the British. The British can't really get at Napoleon directly, only through these, um, you know, trying to convince other people to fight him. And so it's this weird period of kind of start-and-stop war. Um, but the root of it is this conflict between France and Britain. This really is um, like the the moment, we've quoted from it before, but like the scene in Boogie Nights where uh, Dirk Diggler says, it's just like Napoleon in the Roman Empire. When he was king, people kept taking shots at him all the time, trying to knock him off when he was on the top of the throne. Jealousy and will get you nowhere. Jealousy will get you nowhere. So everyone was taking shots at Napoleon, but he uh, he beat all of them. Now, during this time, what were like some of the, 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 this is when some of his most famous battles took place. Like what, what were like the sort of the, the big showdowns of these wars and uh, of, the, of Napoleon's career? Well, the battles keep getting bigger. You know, it's like uh, when the Battle of Austerlitz was fought in uh, 1805, that was the biggest battle in history. And then and who is it between? Give, give me, give me the stats broken. on Austerlitz. It's the French on one side um, and the Austrians and Russians on the other. And um, the Austrians were kind of already on the ropes at this point. Napoleon had um, actually already forced a lot of their army to surrender without firing a shot, just by kind of marching around behind them and surrounding them. Um, so the Austrians oh. were already on the ropes, but the Russians had not actually really faced him in a big battle yet. Um, this was kind of... Um, they they had a really strong army, the Russians, and this was kind of the first big test um, uh, versus Napoleon himself. And uh, basically, Napoleon sort of he had a smaller army, and he was operating very far from um, from France. Uh, Austerlitz is, um, I mean, it's in like Eastern Europe, and basically he tricked the Allies into getting overconfident and attacking. And then, um, you know, sprung a trap on them and sort of jammed up their army into a, a very narrow space and uh, did some damage. Uh, supposedly, the Russians are actually uh, cried um, just because uh, of such a total defeat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he said uh, the, the czar said that uh, we're like uh, we're like babies in the hands of a giant. Damn. <laughs> it's pretty hot. <laughs> yeah, 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 Mr. Napoleon, that could you get uh, being stepped on. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's like Russian. It's Poroshki Gate. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, Matt made reference to it before. You know, we're obviously we're, we're glossing over a lot, but uh, a big fuck up repeated off throughout history is invading Russia itself. When did when did Napoleon get down to doing that? You said it was at a time where he was basically flying by the seat of his pants. He decides to invade Russia. Uh, big mistake. So he, um, 1812, uh, at this point, uh, important to notice at this point, um, a lot of the kind of core guys of the French army, you know, we we're talking about at the beginning, these these guys who'd risen up uh, around the time of the revolution, a lot of them are dead at this point. You know, the war's been going on a long time. And um, so the, the army that Napoleon invades Russia with is not, um, you know, a lot of the best of them have already died. And a lot of them are not French. Actually, the majority of the army... Hip hop um, style soldiers. Uh, yeah, you know he would he would kind of coerce um, these you know quote unquote allied states into providing him troops, and they were not motivated the way you know the armies he had in Italy had been um, years earlier. And uh, he kind of had his back to the wall. He was trying to um, you know this is the first 
kind of widespread use of economic warfare in history. He was trying to basically blockade British trade to Europe and sort of to attack that financial advantage they had over the French. And uh, Russia uh, had been allied to the French, but the Tsar had a change of heart and pulled out of this blockade. And, you know, you can't kind of half blockade a country. You have to, everybody has to be in it or it doesn't work. And so Napoleon was in a position of either abandoning this, you know, now the only form he had of fighting back against the British or um, trying to invade the Russians and force them back into his economic blockade. And he knew it was a dicey proposition going in, but he thought he could beat the Russians before winter. Uh, Winter came early. The Russians didn't give him a good battle, and uh, the rest is history, as they say. Well, I mean, there's a there's a great scene in the movie that that portrays the the French army uh, just bogged down in Russia in these huge snowdrifts, and like the movie's sort of interesting in that it, there's no huge battle scenes in it, but like of what what he does capture, I think is quite good. And there's just these scenes of like these guys. And they're just like frozen into the ground. They're just bodies, just frozen and just covered in snowdrifts. And this is at a time when the two are the two main characters, the the titular du- duelists, haven't seen each other in years, and they randomly happen across each other in the middle of this massive military disaster. And of course, are going to try to start up their feud again. Harvey Keitel's character enlists Keith Carradine's to go into this valley where they think some Cossacks are. As an ex- basically as an excuse to get alone and get away so that they can duel one more time and hopefully one of them will die or they'll finally resolve this. But while they're doing it, they're, of course, set upon by the Cossacks and they're forced to fight alongside each other rather than duel each other. But, like, you know, in that scene, you see just, like, the, the you know, frostbitten faces and just frozen into the ground of just, like, you know, you imagine, like, thousands of people in the army just dying like that. Yeah, people, this is something that, you know, you read accounts of the Russia campaign, and this is something that almost all of them mention as a particularly horrifying thing, is um, guys would, um, out of exhaustion, just sit down on the side of the road and... uh, Start to feel warm, maybe, for a second, and you wouldn't realize it, and the next thing you know, you'd be dead. Yeah, uh, you know, it gets gets cold at night, and you you pass out for a minute because you're exhausted and hungry, and uh, you don't wake up, and that happened to a lot of people, and... uh, it, uh, you know, it's the the Russia retreat is sometimes a little overblown. You know, Russia Napoleon did still leave with hundreds of thousands of men. Um, you know, the armies, uh, the, the the different parts of the army took different routes out, and some of the routes were worse than others. Um, but you know, the army which already had had been not kind of at its at its peak was really you know, after that, just a shadow of itself, you know, just so many good officers have been lost, so many experienced people, um, you know, again, just forced to rely more and more on these foreign troops who, you know, didn't really care too much about whether Napoleon survived or not. Uh, meanwhile, his opponents were copying him, copying his methods and get actually getting better. So that's when you start to see Napoleon really um, you know, getting pushed in a way he had not been early in his career. Um, you know, fighting so with like, his bad army like he, um, against better opponents. So he, like he, he dominated Europe militarily for like you know, pretty much a decade, and no, nobody could beat him. Like other than, like you said, the the sort of the valor and and morale of of his army were like what what like tactically or like strategically or just in terms of like weapons or, or like style. Like what what made what made him so and his army so good 
before there this sort of decline i mean the the um the most important thing is what we talked about at the beginning you know just the the sense you know he he was good at uh not just him but the 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 revolutionary government and then him in particular were good at giving the soldiers a sense of purpose and a sense that they were um you know they should want to be there not that they should just um you know frederick the great said that the men fight because they're afraid of their officers and that's not what napoleon believed uh he he believed that they should actually believe in what they were doing um and uh uh as far as technology it's actually the french began the napoleonic wars using the same weaponry they'd used basically in the american revolution uh as far as firearms go and they ended it with those exact same model weapons uh the artillery was the same the french didn't change their artillery system until the 1850s so that was all pretty much the same stuff. So they didn't really have much of a technological edge. It was all just these, um, you know, a different type of army. And then what made Napoleon so special was he saw this type of new type of army and saw the the capabilities it gave you. You know, he saw that, oh, these men are willing to march 60 miles in two days. These men are willing to, um, you know, fight a battle and then turn around, march overnight to go fight in another battle. And that type of speed um, is just, um, you know, speed is more important in speed in kills gen- generally. Yeah, speed right. kills. Speed, dis- speed kills. Well, Tommy Hearns is the best boxer of all time. <laughs> it's a little boxing joke for everybody. <laughs> uh, lessons from history, success fail lessons from history. I think five and six. Yep. Uh, number one, uh, make sure your employees and followers don't have to fear you mm. they have to love you mm. which is the best kind of fear mm. is love yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then the other lesson is uh, if you're going to invade Russia uh, you will need wool socks and those little packets that you can put in your gloves or, or shoes or or uh, you know the Lil Yachty song Minnesota yeah you have to have Quavo's attitude in his verse <laughs> it's cold but I got my shirt off big sack of Molly golf balls <laughs> <laughs> Fuck 12, they can't put me over. <laughs> it is cold like Minnesota in Russia. Yeah. That, uh, don't forget it. Uh, and also, don't fall asleep if it's like really, if you're outdoors and it's like like below freezing, don't just like fall asleep because you're tired and it feels good at the time. That mm-hmm. little bit of warmth that you're feeling is actually you dying. Mm. So, like, yeah, don't do that. Mm. This is also. Napoleon but- hardly ever slept. So, that's, I think, a general, a good general message. Real Napoleon hours. Wow, that's me too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. and like Trump, honestly. I mean, apparently. Felix doesn't sleep, sleep either. All yeah. the geniuses, me, Trump, yeah. and Napoleon. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I don't get tired. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, look. But also, when you're outside, when you you're, you've invaded Russia, you're occupying it. It's winter. This is the one time where you can do the thing that you always want to do but can't. It's piss in your bed. <laughs> Just piss all over yourself. Mm. It'll keep you warm. Yeah. <laughs> no, it won't. It yes, won't. It don't, no, don't do that for like 18 seconds. Well, it will, It'll, well yeah. you guys have some weak piss. If it's getting cold that quick. <laughs> you're just pissing for like. <laughs> 72 hours just a slow no dude my piss does not get cold yeah. <laughs> yeah i have to piss into uh i have to piss into like one of those uh into a centrifuge okay. so it can go into gas and go out my window <laughs> my piss has never gotten cold it's a sharper image yeah thing. for men with high t yeah. uh our nut sacks are basically radiators it's yeah. like my dick is the bodega coffee mm. pots or mm-hmm. 
And you know, it's basically these are the. <laughs> Felix is, by the way, <laughs> physically pointing to his his genitals right yeah. now. Like we were. Really... If you pay for the thousand dollar a month tier, you can see me do this. Yeah. Uh, this is one of our more intelligent episodes, by the way. It was yeah. for the past fifty minutes. <laughs> uh, but you guys had to disagree with me about this. <laughs> Look what but, you made uh, me do. But uh, okay, back to back to history and Napoleon. Okay, so like you said, it was all sort of downhill from there. Eventually, he is exiled to Elba. He comes back in what is the Hundred Days, and then and then finally, the Great Denouement is when he is defeated at Wellington. So, Ev, could you just sort of round out Napoleon's kind of fall from power? Yeah, so, you know, Napoleon, obviously, you know, as I've mentioned a couple times now, is not fighting with as good an army. He's also, uh, you know, his opponents are getting better, but he's also slipping a little bit. Um, and he doesn't have he's like, some he's of like his Rocky best in Rocky III. anymore. So he's kind of playing with the B team. He's getting old. And um, he still actually almost pulled it off at Waterloo. You know, it's something people... Uh, sometimes ignore is that, you know, that he had this very bold plan for the Waterloo campaign against pretty insurmountable odds. And he almost pulled it off. You know, the first, the first big battle of the campaign against the Prussians, he, he beat them pretty bad. Um, but so badly actually that unfortunately he thought that they were going to just run back to Berlin and they came right back the next day. And that was what sealed his fate. But um, by about 1806, 1807, it's pretty clear kind of the Napoleonic vision for Europe was not going to work out. Um, the British were just never going to accept having this massive superpower, you know, new Roman Empire right on their shores. And the French had no real way of, of getting at the British with their Navy destroyed. So it was a matter of time. An empire in which you could not bugger a lad. <laughs> they would not stand for it. That's the, Yeah, they did the speech from Independence Day. <laughs> to die! It's all child buggering day. <laughs> <laughs> well, and they were all, you know, the British were being, uh, you know, it was the bankers that gave them the, the edge. So Napoleon was like proto Alex Jones going yeah. after the globalists. Globalists. Yeah. yeah. It, was, it, was called, it was called Yorkshire Pudding Gate. Uh, <laughs> after Napoleon got exiled, a single Bonapartist went into an inn and uh, discharged a musket round into the ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> but it actually, the, it, Pizzagate doesn't work because that was just like in the British Constitution. It still is in the British Constitution. <laughs> like that's their they're instead of having the First Amendment, they're like, uh, headmasters have a right to suck a three year old's dick. <laughs> Read the Magna Carta, folks. <laughs> read it. I've read it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but but like after he's defeated, like what is. Like what is like what is like what is his legacy like what 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 took his place after he was finally deposed in France and in the rest of Europe? Well, the uh, the the crazy right wing reactionary uh, brothers of the executed king came back and uh, uh, famously the the line about them is they they learned nothing and forgot nothing so they basically just tried to roll back the clock to 1788 and get some revenge on the people they felt like had been mean to their brother. And uh, it didn't work very well because France had just changed too much and uh, they didn't last too long. And by uh, uh, 1830, you've got another revolution to put a kind of more more liberal uh, member of that family on the on the throne. So they tried out, you know, woke monarchy for a while, um, but he only lasted until 1848. And then it's back to a republic. That's the thing about the movie that I thought was most interesting because it doesn't really deal too much directly with Napoleon. It's just these two dudes sort of 
going off on their own blood feud over the years. But it felt like what it really was shedding light on more than anything was sort of the kind of uh, uh, modern liberal uh, worldview that Napoleon sort of helped birth in Europe, where Keith Carradine's character sort of represents the new European being created by Napoleon's uh, rule and Keitel is sort of this throwback and how like his sort of Carradine's sort of disbelief in this cult of honor and, and sort of unthinking obedience and, and this degree of sort of remove and, and sarcasm and cynicism was sort of something that Napoleon basically helped create by taking over Europe. You know, as Hegel said, he was history on horseback, sort of reordering the world around him as he took power. And the people who came sort of in his wake were never going to be able to go back into those slots that the pre-Napoleonic feudal rule would have allowed, would have insisted upon them going to. Yeah, that's exactly right, Matt. Um, And I think that's, that's, part of what I like about this movie is it shows you kind of portraits of two kinds of people who supported Napoleon. And, uh, you know, it shows you why Bonapartism became kind of this, um, this shadow of itself in, in later eras of French history, because guys like Joubert had no need for Napoleon anymore. And they mostly became either Republicans or uh, liberal monarchists. And so all that's left, you know, kind of to carry the torch for Napoleon are, you know, these like, you know, violence-loving lunatics like Faroe, um, because Napoleon had kind of served his purpose by the end. Yeah, the, the, and yeah, that's a really that, that's that's a really good way of thinking about it. And like at the very poignant point at the end of the movie is that they're they're reunited for one last duel. And at this point, Keith Carradine's character is actually uh, an officer and now the Royalist Army. Correct? Like he's he's sort of switched sides and he's no longer right. a Bonapartist. And then Faroe finds out about this and is furious and was like, "This is why I challenged him the first time. I always knew his loyalty was suspect." And, you know, Dubair has sort of a good life now. He's married to a nice young woman. Her family has, you know, property and land, and he has a good life. But he just has this one last thing. And it's a great scene where they, they deal with pistols at this sort of abandoned castle in the woods in France. And uh, Ferro fires his two shots too quickly. And then uh, Dubair uh, gets him dead to rights at point-blank range. And instead of killing him, says, I'm not going to kill you, but your life is mine now. And according to your rules of honor, like your life belongs to me. And he says, you will conduct all affairs towards me in the future as you were a dead man. And the last shot of the movie is Keitel on him on his own looking over this like, you know, sort of very scenic, almost painting like Vista. There's an amazing shot where it's like a sun shower and they capture it and you can kind of see it on his face. But in that character's moment is like the all consuming drive and force in his life is now bereft of him and he's completely alone and in exile, and just sort of completely adrift. And I thought that was a really uh, nice moment in that movie. And he looks like Napoleon. They've got him dressed up like Napoleon. Yeah, he's he has the hat. in that famous portrait of Napoleon on St. Helena. So it's, um, you know, it's clearly, you know, uh, that's probably the clearest reference you get in the movie. So if you could sum things up, I mean, you're talking about sort of, the, the legacy of Napoleon is creating this kind of newer liberal order in the world but also being something of a tyrant and like do you think that 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 sort of contradiction is uh still with us today 
Well, I think actually that's the, um, in some ways, that's the birth of the modern left and the modern right right there is that inherent contradiction between the four, you know, in the forces Napoleon unleashed, which is sort of, um, you know, with a guy like uh, Thoreau, you know, the idea of committing oneself to service to a state, the idea, you know, the worship of violence, the, uh, the cult of militarism, um, you know, that couldn't really coexist with kind of the values represented by Dubert, this sort of enlightened, more humanistic, individualistic, uh, liberal outlook. And that, you know, because uh, Napoleon's opponents, they, they weren't conservatives. They didn't think anybody should be involved in politics but them. They didn't want people, you know, they didn't want common people supporting the monarchs. They didn't want common people having political opinions. So conservatism was kind of invented um, in this era as a response to that 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 more um, that liberal worldview that, that was unleashed, and um, I think that's the the split you see with those two men. So I think our final our final lesson from history here is if you are going to shape history around you um, and create a uh, new liberal world, you may also uh, give birth to its opposite and embody those contradictions yourself in your uh, Camboy network that uh, you work for and, start, and your, is your Camboy startup company. And these are the lessons that we can impart to you. And make sure you have good credit. <laughs> you need credit to fight a war. Uh, guys, um, we hope you've learned a lot. If you want to continue you, your education, you know, continue to apply the Napoleonic success win principles to your life, we have a little exercise for you. We want you to dress up like Napoleon Bonaparte and try to go out and get some pussy. <laughs> <laughs> if you can do that, you're going to learn a lot about yourself, about what Napoleon went through, and about the world. <laughs> Everett, thanks so much for joining us. But also, I mean, if you'd like to learn, would, would you like to know more about the age of Napoleon Everett, what should they do? Well, uh, there is a podcast incoming. Oh, you don't um, say. Uh, starring yours truly. Um, you can follow the account on Twitter at Age of Napoleon. Um, and first episode should be out um, soon, any day now. Um, yeah, thanks for having me, guys. It was fun. Our pleasure. Our pleasure, dude. This was, uh, again, I, I love these history episodes. I think we should do more of them. Everett, please come back and talk to us anytime you like. Absolutely. Anytime. I got to beat Derek, guys. Please. Let me beat Derek. <laughs> he's, got of, he's got a bit of a head start. I'm but. sick of him, actually. <laughs> Someone needs to overtake Derek. Yeah. That's our goal for uh, 2017. Overtake Derek Davison, everybody. Everett, once again, thanks so much for talking to us. Thank you, Ev. Bye. Thanks, guys. Bye, Ev. Bye-bye.